Hello and welcome to this Unheard podcast. I'm Giles Fraser and I write the weekly Holy Cow column for Unheard. I'm about to interview Vicky Beeching, who's just published a really fascinating uh, new book called Undivided, about how she reconciled her life as a Christian and as gay. You can read a column that accompanies this podcast at unheard.com. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Unheard podcasts. Enjoy the interview. So I'm sitting in my study with Vicky Beeching, who's got a cup of tea and some lemon drizzle cake. Yes. And this is classic <laughs> Anglican vicarage stuff. And we're here to talk about her new book, which is called Undivided, and the subtitle Coming Out, Becoming Whole, and Living Free from Shame. And uh, I have just finished it yesterday, and it's an extraordinary book. Um, you're a rock star, aren't you? That's that. the start thing. I hate that title. But that's that's what that's no. what you were. Talk um, about talk about that because I don't understand that world. Yeah, it's at such all. a strange reality. So, the British Church and the American Church are so different and yet so alike. I mean, believing mo- many of the same things faith wise, but expressing it in a very different way. So, um, mega churches may have five thousand, ten thousand people on a Sunday. Yeah, these purpose-built auditoriums with cinema-style seats that flip up and down and, you know, bands and... It's and lots of money. Yeah, lots of money. It's like a concert venue, basically. And they're the sort of places that I spent um, the majority of my 20s singing in. And So you got of, yeah. picked up... How do you get picked up for doing this? I mean, how do you... How do you... Uh, did you do a strumming <laughs> guitar when in your bedroom here I was in... in a village in Kent. Yeah. Um, you know in the middle of nowhere, just whiling away my evenings after school, playing the guitar, making up songs, um, gradually recorded a few demos. It was actually demo tapes back then, right, which yeah, yeah, yeah. shows how long ago it was. Yeah. Um, not even CDs and not even MP3s, but actual tapes and, you know, sending them off to Christian record labels. So basically people that make religious music. And it's a big, this is big business, isn't it? Well, I mean... it's, it's a lot smaller in the UK, but my my goal was never for it to be successful or to be a business i i watched my mum singing songs she'd written in our church on sundays and just really aspired to do that my grandma did the same she used to play the piano and sing in church it's kind of a family tradition um and i just used to think what an amazing gift to be able to give people you know to find new ways to put kind of themes around faith to music and hopefully move people and inspire them and make them think on sundays so it was really quite a simple desire to, you know, make music for good reasons. And so you got picked up by, you sent a tape up and suddenly, yeah, you know, so some record was, label picks you up. I was about 17, I think, when I got my first publishing contract. So it did start when I was quite young and I just knew from that young age that that was what I wanted to give my life to. I mean, I remember looking back um, the first few times I would sing in churches in the UK I was so nervous and I remember I clamped my eyes totally shut, sang my song, opened my eyes at the end and people had tears running down their faces and I was just so taken aback, you know, that it had sort of moved them. I mean, they could have been crying because it was terrible. <laughs> That's the other but, reality. But, it, but um, afterwards, people came up and just said those songs really helped us, you know, they helped us connect somehow with a sense of who God is and, um, you know, they just said it encouraged them in their faith and it was a sort of... I don't know, some kind of spiritual moment for them. So I thought, how meaningful, you know, like the work that you do, the, if you can sort of 
hopefully help people find spirituality and fulfillment in their spirituality that's that's pretty meaningful yeah, yeah. vocation yeah, so yeah. that's what i wanted yeah. to do yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah it just unfolded bit by bit gradually and then you go to the states and it goes yeah. so after, completely after, I, tonto. after i went to university because my my parents um, wanted me to get a degree just to be on the safe side <laughs> in case music didn't work out which is really nice of them to you know be sensible for me um, yeah. so got my degree and then went off to the u.s and ended up getting signed by EMI, which is, well, it was the biggest Christian record label in America. Um, And they didn't have a female religious worship leader at the time, like me, that was writing songs of that kind. And so they just said, we'd love to sign you because we think you're a bit unique. And then everything just unfolded. You know, I moved there as a really early 20-something. And before I knew it, I was playing in these big mega churches thinking, how... How did something that started in my bedroom in Kent, <laughs> in a small village... Um, and were you, were, you, know, you were writing your own there. stuff, so the stuff you were writing was stuff that they started to sing, started yeah, to know... Yeah, and... just kind of... It's just bizarre, like, hearing What's what's, what's the most famous Vicky Beaching? Um, Is there a most famous Vicky One Beaching? of them... Sounds so, it just all sounds so funny talking about it, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really not... It's, it's such a small niche of the world, but in that niche, they do sing the songs a fair bit. So Yesterday, Today and Forever is probably one of the better known songs and that's a song about God never changing and always being the same and it's that's one that people often use at the start of church services because it's kind of an upbeat song but yeah there's there's quite a few there's a hymn called the wonder of the cross that gets sung a lot in America um yeah and I am pleased with the music but it's uh yeah it's just amazing to kind of think about people singing them every Sunday around did you know you were gay when you were doing going through all of that I did. I knew that I was gay the same year that I sang and performed my my first song in church. So it was a big year. I was 13. And it was the strangest feeling, really. Um, I just knew that these two parts of my life were totally incompatible. And I couldn't help thinking that I... Um, I don't know. I just kept thinking, why me? You know, I felt like such an unlikely candidate. I know there's no such thing as an unlikely candidate to be gay, but I didn't know any LGBT people. There weren't any in my life because I was in such a conservative part of the church that if anybody was gay, they certainly wouldn't have told me. Um, and I just remember thinking, how on earth are these feelings happening? Like I'm so not. So it's quite very lonely. Very lonely. I I couldn't tell anyone. Um, back then it was Section Twenty Eight, you know, the UK law that meant it was basically illegal for teachers to talk about same-sex relationships. So at school, absolutely nothing positive about being gay. There were no teachers that I could go to. My parents are lovely, but they, you know, they were led by the teachings of the evangelical yeah. church, and then yeah, yeah. obviously at church was the last place I would have mentioned it. So, um, yeah, I just remember this feeling of just being so trapped, so trapped, and really reached uh, reached a point in my teens where I just ended up on the floor multiple nights, sobbing and praying, saying to God, "You can't have made me gay and Christian because that's not allowed." <laughs> you know, like I, I remember praying one night, I said, "I'd rather." God would actually take my life or I would end my life because I just couldn't imagine a future because those two things felt like they were ripping me in two. And they do, don't they? I mean, that's the, mm. that's the, that, that's the whole undivided thing, isn't it? Is it that, is, yeah. Is that um, living with that sort of dissonance is... Well, it's affected your health as well. I mean, I know maybe I shouldn't say that because I know you no, personally. You no, so, but it has yeah. affected your health, no, hasn't I'm, it? I, I mean, I'm really honest about that. Um, in my public speaking and writing, because I think um, it's fascinating how interwoven we are as human beings, that actually the emotional 
psychological part of us has such a knock-on effect on the physical and weirdly enough I managed to sort of outrun a lot of the pain and the mental anguish but it was my body in the end that kind of broke. Isn't that really interesting? Really really interesting. So Your I, body outed you. It really. outed me basically because I'd become a workaholic because you know I got signed in my 20s and then I just threw myself into work because I knew that I in my head I thought I could never have a family or a partner. So you're trying to outrun the pain. Basically trying to outrun the pain. And then other people would have just lived some kind of double life. But I just was so earnest and had such a sensitive conscience and wanted to follow the teachings of the church to the letter. And so didn't date, didn't, you know, never even kissed anyone. I mean, it's like just all those years of just being so... There must have been all sorts of poor blokes that had massive... (laughs) I've got to say, there must have been all these poor blokes that had these massive crushes on you and were like, felt... Completely inadequate when you, like, I'm not interested. Is that true? Well, I mean, probably no more than the average girl, but, I mean, I did get asked out, and it was was actually really hard because I never knew what to say, and often it was friends, you know? Like, you're just friends with guys, and um, I get on really well with guys. A lot of my friends are always male, and there would just be these awkward conversations where it's like, <laughs> why can't we give it a go, you know? And they would just yeah, yeah, get yeah. on so well, yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah. they're yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah. handsome, wonderful say, guys, and yeah. I just would have to sort of make stuff up and it ruined actually a lot of my friendships because the guys could tell there was it just didn't add up you know so your body outs you as it were and uh but presumably you also have to make a decision a courageous decision given the fact Mm. that you're standing in front of tens of thousands of people singing your songs and they're all pretty conservative you know when you decide that i actually have to talk about this yeah what's the was there a was there a precipitating moment was there there was yeah so in terms of my health kind of outing me and breaking me down it was um towards the end of my 20s I just began to get really really tired and then I noticed these strange white patches on my skin and didn't really think much of it but went to the doctor and he said it was an autoimmune disease and that my skin cells were actually turning into scar tissue and he said that your body is basically fighting against itself literally fighting against Blimey, you don't need Dr. Freud to work I know, out and, he, and he said that, um, you know, the, he basically said autoimmune diseases are quite mysterious and sometimes we can carry them our whole lives and they're never triggered. So you might have something like scleroderma and actually never develop it. And he just said that often stress and trauma are what trigger autoimmune diseases. And so he said to me, knowing nothing about my life, if there's something that really stresses you out, something that is weighing you down, something traumatic, deal with it because that could well be what has basically started to turn your skin cells into scar tissue and your body's at war, you need to sort your life out. So your body's at war with it, mm. itself and you're at war with it. Exactly, yourself. and I just instantly, obviously knew what it was and um, ended up just lying in a hospital bed on a form of chemotherapy, which is what it took to treat it, just lying in the hospital bed going, I have to finally come to terms with who I am, you know. Um, so who did you tell first? Well, myself, probably. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, coming out to myself was hard enough, kind of admitting it. Um, but I know what you mean. Um, let me think. Um, one of the first people I told was um, a therapist. He thought instantly, I just need help, you know. need help rebuilding my mental health, yeah. my physical health. Um, I told my best friend. That's, that's in the book. Um, and she was wonderfully supportive. Um, and then after that, I told my parents and my sister... And I actually didn't tell very many people uh, before I went public because 
I just don't know. The Christian world can be full of gossip sometimes. I don't know whether that's <laughs> oh, you, oh, you, confidential, confidentiality in the Church of England. Yeah. There's a saying: confidentiality in the Church of England means you tell one person at a time. <laughs> that's okay, what someone that, told me. I'm glad that you agree with that. <laughs> I, I've also come across this weird thing in the church where people share things for prayer. It's like, oh, I'm just telling you, dear. just for the sake of, you know, so you can be praying for them. Okay. So-and-so is doing this, and so-and-so is doing so that. So it's gossip it's for, dressed yeah, up as... It's gossip as, dressed up as, like, prayer. You know, things yeah. that we can be praying for about for people. And I just knew that if I told more than a handful of people that it would just spread. And I really wanted to get to tell my own story because it was just so important to me to say, you know, I have followed the teachings of the church. You know, I haven't lived a double life. I've done everything I was told Finally, it's reduced me to a hospital bed and chemo and scars appearing all over my skin. You know, I just felt like I needed to tell my story. Did you get angry? Did you get angry? I got very angry. I've never seen you angry. (laughs) I was very angry at first, and my therapist can testify to that, that I just think, I don't know, there's there's just so many emotions. And I think even now, four years after coming out, I still feel, I would say the biggest emotion is actually grief. So sometimes I get angry, but more so it's grief for the sense of lost years. Um, but also anger, you know, anger at the fact that I did the right thing. Um, and anger for my body as well, you know, like I'm still actually living with some um, sort of debilitating health issues. The autoimmune stuff is mostly fixed, but I've got um, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and fibromyalgia. And none of those have really got cures. And Basically, the doctors just say it's probably a hangover from the stress of living in the closet. And um, when I came out in 2014 in this very public way in an interview in The Independent, um, because it ended up getting a lot of traction, I ended up getting a lot of vitriol and hate mail. So um, so that your, so your former employers and the people that sang your, that sang your songs and bought your records, mm. they turned on you, presumably. They did. It was really shocking. So I made the decision, you know, in that hospital bed, right, I'm going to come out. I got my strength back, got my health back, finally did the interview. And I I think at the back of my mind, I wondered, like I knew what the church really thought about same-sex marriage and that evangelicals were against it. Um, but part of me thought, I wonder if it'll be different because it's me. Because I'd just seen so many of them, you know, thousands of them singing my songs, telling me that the stuff I did with my music helped them connect with God. I thought, maybe they'll rethink, maybe they'll take a different look. <coughs> and it was actually a real shock that they didn't and I think it had a massive impact on my mental health to be honest that all of these people that had felt like family to me in all of these churches around the world instantly closed the door and were writing all over their social media you know church sites saying things like you know we're so disappointed that Vicky's you know living this life of sin and clearly on a pathway to hell and we'll never sing her song she'll never come back here we're distancing ourselves we're disassociating ourselves um, and the record label that suddenly that all dried up well, it it? it's kind of a whole machine over there in america if you can't play in the mega churches and the big christian conferences and if you can't be sold in the traditional christian bookshops um there's no way that anyone can record you because they won't recoup any money from sales so it's this sort of big thing where you need the christian record label the Christian radio, the Christian bookstores and the big churches and um, all of them just didn't want me anymore, you know. Um, Did that happen pretty quickly? It happened instantly. I mean, my independent interview went live. I think people were very shocked. It wasn't something anyone had ever imagined. Um, And it was just sort of like a... I mean, they were just devastated because they felt like I'd chosen this 
enemy pathway, you know. So it's, it would, they, they felt that you'd betrayed them. Absolutely, betrayal is a word. Rather than they lot. betrayed you. Oh, no, no, they thought I'd betrayed them. And I still, I still hear from people, you know, every week. I mean, social media for me is a very unpleasant place a lot of the time. Um, and then I have a PA box and a website with an open contact so form. For, so so for all of the nastiness and yeah. vitriol that you get on social media... Mm. Even that is not as... I mean, in terms of mental health, you've recovered over this period. That is nothing compared to the stress of being in the closet that it was before. No, you're totally right. I mean, I have no regrets. Like, life now is so much better. I can finally be myself. I can finally be authentic. I can, you know, just be (laughs) without having to be in fear. You know, I can actually be myself. And um, There's that Wesley, there's that great Wesley hymn. Uh, which has, I always think it's a sort of feels like a coming out thing. No condemnation now, I dread. You know, uh, the, the, mm. and it's almost like the doors are open, my heart yeah, is free. Yeah. There's, a, there's an extraordinary, yeah. um, you know what my I'm saying? My chains fell off, my heart was My free. chains fell off, my, my heart was free. forth and followed the. Now that you see that, it's like, yeah. it feels like yeah. a sort of yeah. um, uh, a, 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 a liberation yeah. from bondage type it's of. It's funny you say that because that's actually my favourite hymn. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, we used to sing that a lot growing up in um, our parish church, and I just, I love that that verse. I mean, it's, it's just amazing songwriting. It's impossible not to be moved by it, but I think I just. I love that picture of just liberation and I think for me that is what faith should be about no condemnation you know? now I dread yeah, I, I mean, mean it's... Christianity should be about that it should be about setting people free from fear from shame free to be themselves and live a full life but we're, we're, we're terrible at it I know and that's the great we're, irony we're the worst at it that's the great yeah. irony but then when people in the LGBT community now ask me why I still have a faith that kept me in the closet for all these years my answer would be that that hymn actually sums up real faith for me you know I think in the Bible you can see liberation can't you and great inclusion and love and peace and all these great things and that's the Christianity I has your faith ever been have you ever gone through that sort of it's all rubbish I've got to give it up um I think my faith was tested to the absolute hilt to be honest and I suppose it makes sense based on what I've been through um but I had to sort of do this careful mental thing where I separated God from the church and just had to imagine God kind of sitting next to me in a chair grieving you know with me like weeping with me at the way the church treats lgbt people i think if i'd accidentally thought the church really did represent god in that way my faith would have been out the window the church is the enemy well not the enemy i mean i love the church which is tricky you know um i'm sure it's the same with you there's aspects of the church that we love and it's our family and then there are aspects that make us really angry and really sad um But I I won't be leaving the church, and specifically the Church of England. You know, I love it, and um, my hope is that by being in it, I can make some change happen from the inside. Are you still an evangelical? Would you call yourself an evangelical, or is does that...? That's a really interesting question. I think since Donald Trump became president, I think a lot of people have had problems with calling themselves evangelical. I think the statistic was that 81% of white evangelicals in America voted for Donald Trump, and... I've just read a lot of stuff online, people sharing their thoughts, saying actually it's so hard to be evangelical now because you have to say to everyone in the UK or the US, oh, I'm not that sort of evangelical, or I'm not the kind of evangelical that you might assume. You know? And I'm, I just think the term is getting more and more difficult to use, and also it's getting very heavily policed. So I am told by other evangelicals that I can no longer use that term. <laughs> so you they know. would say that I'm not anymore um, but then to people outside in the mainstream world who don't go to church this probably sounds like absolute nonsense like what even is an evangelical but it's a it's a very particular part of Christianity and they really do bear that title with a great sense of pride but there are more there are more 
for want of a better word, progressive evangelicals. Yeah. Um, increasingly, there are there are mm. more progressive evangelicals, and I mean, we're just down the road from Steve Chalk's we are. church here yes. in Waterloo, uh, who's a you know classic progressive yeah. evangelical. And then on the um, lesbian and gay issue, there's people like Jane Azan, who's who's come out, who's a you know very prominent and conservative evangelical um, historically. Um, so there's there's the Am, am I am I wrong to feel there's some movement going on? There in is either? definitely movement. There is, and I and I am super encouraged by that. I think we are seeing a grassroots movement of change in the congregation, sort of in the pews, and I think also with leaders like Steve Chalk. I mean, it was just amazing when he spoke up in 2014, saying that he was suddenly LGBT affirming. No, no evangelical leader had done that before, and he faced so much backlash. I think he was sort of ejected from the Evangelical Alliance and it was amazing to see someone come to that place through, you know, careful study of the Bible, like he said, and also the fact that he doesn't identify as LGBT really means a lot because, you know, he's just an ally and he's actually sacrificing a lot for a community that he doesn't actually belong to. So things really, really are changing. Um, There are tons of Christians now that actually march in pride, which I love every year. Christians at Pride is a big movement, and you can see. Bishop Liverpool there. spoke at, um, of course, didn't he? Yeah, he spoke, yeah, he spoke at Liverpool yeah. Pride. Was yeah. it was it last year I or? Think the... It was. I mean, yeah. people are, you know, Great. People, there is a definite change um, in people's expectations now. I think what Christianity means is not necessarily equated with. But that's probably not still penetrated the the sort of Bible Belt where where you used to see. Yeah, that is that is kind of a world away. I I think. Um, Sometimes looking at American politics, it helps people that aren't familiar with the Bible but understand maybe what the values are like over there. You know, that people who, um, and I'm not having a go at any particular political party, but, um, you know, the sort of people that did really support Trump are a lot of the people that I used to play music to. So the sort of really super conservative family values, I mean, you know, they're still alive and kicking. I mean, some of the worst people, Fred Phelps, for instance, he yeah. was a Democrat. You know, there are some, there are, there were some extremely unpleasant. Yeah, people. definitely. Oh, it's, not, it's not about political divides, but I think. I say you know. I always explain the uh, the Fred Phelps reference actually because yes. that, because there is um there is a, a picture I've seen of of you meeting people from his church. He was a pastor yes. uh, a pastor of the Westboro Baptist Church who died. Uh, in 2015, I think it was, yeah. and uh, this church's pickets, um, lots of gay events, mm-hmm. um, some of the nastiest. Yeah, they are. They are probably the most um, famous anti-gay church in America. They even picket um, things like soldiers' funerals, and they just anything to do with anyone that was gay. They they will show up. And um, I was delivering my first ever keynote speech at a conference in um, the US. It was the first time I'd spoken over there since I came out, and I knew going back to America would be tricky, but I didn't expect that Westboro Baptist would picket my speech. And so I was just horrified. I looked on their website. With their and it, God hates fans. Yeah, well, it mentioned me by name on their website, and it said that because I was speaking, they were coming. Um, and I just kind of saw my name on their website and went, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like? So I remember just walking from the hotel where I was staying in Portland to get to the venue. I had to walk through Westboro Baptist with all the God hates fags signs, and um, one thing that really struck me was how young some of those protesters were. They were younger than me. And, um, yeah, I ended up actually just walking up to them and saying hello. And they wouldn't say anything to me. They just shook their signs and shouted. And um, someone actually snapped a picture of me standing in between 
two of these Westborough girls holding their God Hates Fag sign, and it was just such a surreal moment in time. I look back on the picture and just go, how surreal, you know, that people in God's name could actually come out with those banners and those, you know, one of the One of the, I think one of Fred Phelps's granddaughters has famously converted uh, away from... Yes. Or, and and uh, I've seen some of the stuff that she's done, which is absolutely brilliant, which is sort of repenting of her... Yeah, she's amazing. She actually tweeted me yesterday, funnily enough, on oh, Twitter. Oh. Um, so I shared some What's of her them. name? She's got a double-barreled um, name. It's something Phelps, isn't it? I can't um, remember, but she's on yes, Twitter. Yes, um, so I, yes. Yeah, I was, as part of my book launch, I was just kind of remembering some of the moments in the book, and I retweeted that picture of Westborough and um, the two girls picketing... And um, she suddenly tweeted me and said, oh, I just want you to let you know the good news that one of the girls in that photo has actually left the church and has, has sort of come out of that movement. She said, I just want to encourage you that at least one of those girls isn't there anymore. Megan Ro- Phelps yeah. Roper or something that's like right. that, I think that's it's her right. name. And it was that's just right. so great to hear that update. Right. You know, that and since... that's, a, it was a, that's a granddaughter of the... Yeah, um... yeah, so she's she's left and it just sounds like, you know, at least one of those other young girls in my photo is now no longer no longer kind of dealing out that why are evangelicals so obsessed with homosexuality i don't know i think it maybe feels like one of the last bastions that they're holding on to um i think now that a lot of the views have changed on women because obviously evangelicals have always been slightly divided on women haven't they like whether women can be pastors and leaders you know the church of england has now moved forwards on that still room for people that object but it is a kind of a lost battle i think maybe perhaps this feels like the last battle where kind of conservative evangelicals are saying no way we won't let this happen you know we'll do anything it takes to stop um, because if because they they, they think if, if that if if that if they give in on that then mm. somehow they've lost Some, or... yeah maybe somehow their identity is just obsolete maybe almost like the the tide has kind of come in and but they have yeah. lost i mean this battle is lost i mean the demographics show that you know that younger people in the church uh, just think this is just a nonsense issue. Um, we're we're bored with with bored with all the shenanigans in the Church of England. And you know, I mean, I know the church wants to try and keep everybody together, but effectively, theologically, the, it seems to me that the issue is just it's just been won. But it's funny you say that because if you're actually in that world of conservative evangelicalism, if you're attending those big churches, going to their conferences. Uh, it doesn't feel anything like that. It feels like it's a very real world, okay. very strong kind of like you know bastion of theology. I mean, it's it feels like a very alive and kicking world. And I know to most of the population outside the church, it would seem like a very tiny minority issue. But you know, I lived in the middle of that, and it felt like a very viable thing to believe. And it was something that people preached about. And oh they, yeah, really? very much so. And especially now, I think since same-sex marriage came through Parliament. It's just become such a hot topic. Um, and I think it's just become the problem for the church. And I think that's why um, that's why it's talked about so much, because it's just a huge problem. And I don't think it's... And it's not going to go away, you know. Um, politically, people are just going to keep lobbying. Parliament have even threatened, haven't they, to step in on some issues of inequality and diversity in the church. So I don't know. I think everybody's just really rallying up for the fight. But women bishops, you know, that took decades didn't it you know 20 30 years or more to see that come to reality and really I think my message and the message of my book is we don't have that much time you know this whole traumatic living in the closet thing drove someone as you know balanced as me to thoughts of suicide and we've got you know 
people in the church that are in the closet facing these exact same things. We can't spend 20, 30 years debating this in synod. You know, we have to make change now. I completely agree. The, 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 the big theological argument of your book, it seems to me, if there is one, is that um, it's something about human flourishing. Yeah. Is, that, is that actually um, that God wants us to flourish yeah. and that uh, gay people uh, do not flourish under this teaching in the church, cannot flourish. Yeah, and actually this cannot be... This is not a consistent position. No. Is that to be, you know, God wants human beings fully alive, exactly. flourishing. Exactly. And this is, it is not possible to be uh, flourishing yeah. and fully alive under this That's uh, exactly teaching. it. I think it, um, there's a really interesting um, story that Jesus tells that you'll know very well about judging a tree by its fruit. And it's this concept of, you know, looking at people's lives and seeing what's sort of produced, just like you might look at a tree and see, you know, oranges or lemons or apples and you'd know that it's what kind of tree it is you know you sort of look at a person and if they've got good fruit in their life um the bible says that's a good person you know good person equals good fruit likewise if you're producing kind of negative things with your life you need to become a better good person so um i think for me it's about looking at people's lives and going actually is the teaching of the church producing good fruit are there signs of somebody being full of joy full of life are people feeling you know expectant about the future are they healthy in their emotions how's their mental health and when I ask all of those criteria about people that are just like I was living in the closet or told that you can be gay but you can never have a partner I just meet so many people that are just broken you know they feel so much shame many people are dealing with mental health issues and immense amounts of isolation and to me that's not good fruit and it's not abundant life it's not the things that God wants for us so I think we need to re-examine the teachings there's a um, there's a really wonderful bit in your book. My favourite bit in your book um, was you and your grandpa, ah. and uh, it's a very moving. It's a very moving exchange. You're very close to your grandpa, mm. and your grandpa clearly maintains a much more traditional view. Yeah, and and it was the modus vivendi, I guess, that you came to with your grandpa. Could you explain that? Because I think that's just such a wonderful thing about how you how you sort of explain to him about you know I was I was dreading that meeting um because he is deeply traditional he he's a Pentecostal and evangelical pastor and preacher and a missionary he's been all around the world preaching and I just knew he was going to be so disappointed by my coming out um and at first he was just talking to me about listening to lots of um kind of Christian American CDs basically of sermons about how you could sort of be healed from being gay and um obviously I said I couldn't do that um and so we just talked and talked and talked and in the end I said granddad um there's this really great quote from Billy Graham because I thought Billy Graham would be a good person to draw on because he's sort of a big evangelical you know hero isn't he in most people's minds and hearts and Billy Graham said um that it's um, God's job to judge and it's our job to love and sometimes we get the roles mixed up and we kind of take on the wrong job description and we think it's our job to judge and it's God's job to love and actually it's the other way around. And so I said to my granddad that he could actually let go of the need to judge me. He could let go of the need to correct me and tell me what he thought the Bible said because actually really that's God's job and our job is to love and frankly that's enough for us to be getting on with. To, to really learn to love other people well is something that will take a lifetime. And he was able to sort of let go gradually of this need to judge and correct 
and just say, actually, I'll love you as my granddaughter. And he got that. He got that. He did. It took us a while. Um, it took us, I don't know, months, maybe a year. But that conversation and that Billy Graham quote were really a, a very important kind of turning point, I think. And we were both just then letting that sink in for the months following. But, but it was an interesting moment to kind of see that you could have two people that don't agree theologically but can actually still love each other. And I think um, in that I sort of saw some hope for, you know, obviously just a small scale, I saw kind of a hope for the church, I guess, that you can have people that disagree but can still love and remain in relationship. And that's it's kind of what we're in in the Church of England, isn't it? You know, we've got all these different views about whether women can be priests or bishops and whether same-sex marriage is okay or not. And I just wonder if, if God's job is to judge and ours is to love, whether we can just try and get better at loving one another, stop the judging and the hatred and the vitriol and just learn how to love better. Final question. Yeah, I'm going to eat some more lemon drizzle cake while Final you ask question. me because this is very tasty. Um, if you could, I mean, there'll be people listening to this who were probably in your situation that you were in before and imagine part of your intended audience for the sorts of thing you're saying is people who were in your, exactly, you know, who, who exactly. were who were yeah. in your situation and so forth. Do you have a, a sort of do- pretty direct message to your former self, to the <laughs> to the twenty year old, twenty five year old Vicky Beach. Thirteen year old, probably. Um, what would you what, what 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 could you say? Um. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things I would say to myself, especially I think to be honest, at the age of thirteen or fourteen, when I first started feeling how different I was, and that shame first kicked in. I just wish somebody could have told me that actually the way I was was perfect and fine and good and that I could have a happy future and from a faith perspective that God had made me that way you know and that it was a good thing and that actually God had blessed me with a very unique way of loving and being loved and there was nothing wrong with it so yeah to anybody who's in the closet or feeling shame or isolation because of kind of either being gay just with social pressures or, or the church you know people telling you you, you are wrong or um, broken I would just say just hold your head high you know, hold your head high and know that you are unique and perfectly made and that you can have a completely happy life great family great relationships everything you want can be yours it's not going to hold you back and that if anybody is telling you otherwise then you know, face it head on. Don't let anybody put you in the closet. I lost half my life. You know, I'm 40 soon and I just feel like I blinked and suddenly 20, 35 years went by. So just be yourself, hold your head up high. And uh, if you're a person of faith, just know that God loves you exactly the way you are. So, um, so what are you doing now? What's, what's, the, what's the new... What's the, what's the new... What are you doing for money? I mean, what's the new career? Yeah, it's all these practical questions, isn't it? It's... Uh, it's interesting what happens when you, um, yeah, you kind of, I guess, um, lose a career from coming out. You know, it's one of the one of the interesting things I think that I I knew was going to happen. I knew I would lose it, but yeah, my my passion really now is equality campaigning. So I'm just getting stuck in trying to make a difference. Um, I do a lot of work on both sides of the the fence actually, like in the LGBT community, trying to help people realise that faith can be a good thing. Um, spend a lot of time with people who've been very hurt by the church who don't ever want to go back Um, but often through meeting me they suddenly kind of feel safer to ask their questions and sort of say oh actually I was from an evangelical background or I did grow up Catholic and when I knew I was gay I just thought I had to you know put that aside so 
on one side of it, I'm working a lot with um, the LGBT community, helping people kind of reclaim their faith. And then on the other side, working with evangelical Christians. Um, a lot of the work I do is actually behind the scenes, one-to-one, um, having conversations with pastors and leaders of churches, just kind of gradually helping them come hopefully to a point of accepting same-sex marriage and sharing my story and all that kind of stuff. So lots of kind of behind the scenes, behind closed doors meetings, trying to help people navigate issues of faith and uh, sexuality. And also, so, I mean, it's, 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 it faces both ways, doesn't it? It's, it's uh, talking to those people who've lost their faith as well from yeah. an LGBT perspective. Yeah, yeah, and then I also just want to be a visible role model. I think media is so <coughs> powerful, so I love doing um, Radio 4's Thought for the Day, like you do, and often I'll do newspaper reviews on BBC or the Sky News Channel, because I just think more visible gay role models are so necessary. If I'd been growing up and switched on the And you're okay with the label bits? You don't, you don't do that? I know you don't like the word lesbian, we just talked about that earlier. <laughs> you said, that's not a word I like. <laughs> I, just, I don't know why, I just don't like the word lesbian. Right, it's right, it's yeah. a funny word, I only ever use the word gay about myself. Um, yeah, I don't mind the label, I just think, um, I just honestly, like most of my life comes back to thinking of what did I need when I was 13 or 14? How could I possibly help somebody not go through what I've been through? So if I can be visible, if I can be out there, you know, speaking, whether it's speaking in churches or often I speak in corporate environments like banks and law firms and things like that. And I talk about diversity at work and just encourage mainstream work environments to, you know, be more... Um, affirming to LGBT people so wherever I am the mission is really the same you know it's encouraging people to be themselves to be authentic to face their fears and especially if they're LGBT to um, just be proud of that and know that they uh, you know no one should be able to make them feel shame or fear (laughs) 